Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me is Nathan Fox. Um, Nathan, I guess you're still in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm in San Francisco, and I'm going to apologize right off the top. There's some road construction going on outside my apartment here in West Portal, the road construction that will never end for like months and months. So if you hear jackhammering, uh, that's my bad. Hopefully uh, our editor... It is, it is your bad. It is my bad. Our man, Sean, hopefully will be able to uh, take a lot of that out. So maybe it won't impact the listeners too much. Cool. So wait, when are you moving to LA or part-time so, at least? Yeah, well, I've already been there. Um, I'm already back and forth. So I was there last week. I'll be there again this week. I'll be there a lot in November, almost all of December. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm back and forth. Okay. Yep. Cool. Well, I look forward to uh, talking to you while you're in LA. I know. It's going to be cool. I know. I'm looking forward to that too. Yeah. So big news, of course, uh, the scores came out last night, um, got a lot of emails and a lot of good ones, a lot of bad ones as usual. I'm assuming same for you. It like never changes. It's always the same. I mean, the, I feel bad because for the student, it's such, you know, it's, it's like a unique, special experience. <laughs> and then, but for me, it's like, it never, ever changes. It's just some people did better than they thought. Some people did worse than they thought. Some people thought the test was really easy. Some people thought the test was really hard. Um, I don't know what to say other than just kind of shit happens. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You feel you have that same experience? Yeah, no, I do have the same experience, and I also think it's interesting how um, people react to different scores, right? You get some people who get a 171, and they're saying, oh, I'm going to retake it, and then you have other people who get a 156, and they say, this is this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, it's all about, you know, expectations, where they were scoring before, what they expected to get out of the test, and, and so on. So it's a whole range of reactions and emotions, I think. Yeah, relativity is a thing, huh? It's like an actual... I mean, for sure, we, we get emails from people who are like so disappointed with their 170 and then mm -hmm. people who would kill for a 160. So, yeah. Well, uh, not surprisingly, uh, a lot of people have the question. This is a quick, uh, this is what we plan to cover today, uh, whether to retake it or not. Um, then we have a question from Paul who's wondering if it's possible to go from a 146 to a 170. Dylan wants some help on the abstract questions. Those would include flaw questions, reasoning questions, role questions uh, that have sort of the abstract answer choices. Um, then we have a report from Vincent uh, who stopped reading the question stem first, and I think he has good news about that. And then, uh, Kaylin, how to keep studying in case of a retake and what to do about speeding tickets. So kind of touching on the retake idea again, I guess, and then speeding tickets. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you have anything else to add to that before we jump in? No, I think that's pretty good. Let's, let's dive in. Okay. So, um, I guess we don't have a specific email here about whether to retake or not, or do you, should we just jump into Paul's just, question? Um, so no, let's go, let's talk about the retake issue off the top since it's on everybody's mind. Um, I, no specific email here. I got, you know, 10 emails yesterday asking me if they, if I should retake the LSAT. Yeah, And I'm sure you got another 10 emails about retaking yes. the LSAT. So the general deal is like, um, my pra I mean, here, I, I, I'm sure I have one like in my inbox right now. Wait, 
I should have prepared. Sorry, folks, for not preparing. Um, yeah, my student, Zach, uh, in my classroom class, he was getting 168 to 172 in the run-up to October 3rd. He took the test, thought he did okay, got his score back, and that's a 164. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he He's asking a question whether he should retake. Uh you know, part of me feels like I can still do better, but on the other hand, I'm not sure if I want to take the time again to study and prepare like I did over the summer. Zach was studying full time over the summer okay. and, uh, you know, he was like a stalwart in my class and he was clearly doing all the work and extra work and just really busted his ass and improved a lot and, you know, ended up achieving a 164, which people are really happy with, but it did not get up to his 160 whatever that was again um sorry what did i say it was 168 to 172 is like his range of practice tests and so he was like he was you know really not sure whether he should retake or not and what would your advice be in that situation i would say retake it hands down i mean my i have two reactions to what he's saying one is that he was scoring higher so even if he didn't do anything i think the odds of him scoring higher on the next round of down in the December LSAT is very high. Um, obviously, I think he should do more. Um, but in response to his point that he studied a lot and he may feel a little burned out or, or sort of not sure whether he wants to you know, go forward, um, I would say, and I, <laughs> I quit on things all the time, so I don't want to pretend that I'm some sort of hero here and telling everyone to like get, get their... Um, you know, stuff together and to work hard. But one thing, um, being in the position that I'm in, I see people all the time who, who study, you know, and don't get the score they want and then pull things together and do it again. And then sometimes do it a third time. And it's a lot of work, but when it pays off and they look back, it was a couple more months or maybe three more months because, or five more months because they ended up retaking it twice. But they're almost universally happy that they, they did. And even those who don't necessarily see the gains that they did, that they were hoping to see, uh, I think are happy with the fact that they stuck it out and at least gave it their best shot so that they can rest assured that, hey, well, I, I did the best I could, so I'm not going into law school with any sort of thoughts of, oh, could I have done better? And the thing is, is that hard work... Um, makes you, I think, a, a stronger um, law student. Uh, law school is a lot of work. The legal profession is a lot of work. Again, I'm not pretending that I'm some sort of hard worker, Yeah. but uh, seeing people do it and being happy with the results for it, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing about the test yeah. and something that uh, pays off. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that this particular student is not at all afraid of the um, the hard work aspect. I think that uh, Zach's deal is that he is going. You know, he's looking for a job now because he was studying full time for a few months, and now he's he's got, got to get a job, get some income, get some experience as well. And so he's worried that he's not going to have the time. I, and I hear this a lot. Like I, I I'm not going to have the time. This semester is really busy, and I I'm not going to have the time to continue studying the way I was studying over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, but my response in, in this situation is usually like, well, it's not going to take that much time the second time around. You, you got, you know, uh, Zach was scoring 
five, six points higher average on his practice tests. And I just don't think that, I don't think he needs to be studying full-time between now and December 5th in order to, to have a really good expectation of scoring higher than his 164. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I had a few other students yesterday that I was giving very similar advice to. It's just like, hey, my practice test scores were higher than my actual. Uh, boy, I don't want to go through this again, or I don't have the time to go through this again. And I, I just I, I want to impress upon people that I really don't think you have to go through the same process again. Mm-hmm. You, you've learned these skills, and I, I don't, they're not going to go away overnight. Yeah. So what, I mean, what do you think someone like that, you know, let's say someone who has done 30 practice tests over the last three months, you know, and, and, and really improved their score and gotten their scores to a level that they would be happy with. What do you think the time commitment really is to just stay sharp enough over the next uh, six weeks or whatever it is and, and then take the December 5th LSAT? Well, I think it's what we, we say so frequently, right? Um, a 35 minute section a day, or maybe even every other day, you just have to look at your schedule and figure out what you can do. But it's just about maintaining a score. Sometimes people only take one test a week in that situation because he really is a higher scorer. He just, I don't know, he had a a bad day. Uh, It would be nice if he could do more work to really ensure that he doesn't make the same mistake again. But it's not like he necessarily even has to do that much. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not, you know, your ability is more accurately measured by the average of your last five tests or the average of your last 10 tests or whatever. And yeah. if, if your, your actual was significantly lower than the average of your last five or last 10 practice tests, just seems like a no brainer to me to retake. Um, yeah. This is bad news for a lot of people, I think. I, they, they don't like hearing this because obviously, you know, they don't want to spend their lives on the LSAT like like you are going to, Ben, and like <laughs> I am currently doing. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I get that, that people are not sick and twisted like we are, but they, you know, and, and they want to move on. They want to do other stuff. They want to just put the LSAT behind them. But boy, it's such a high leverage test. And, um, what do you think the cutoff is for, for making it worth it? Like how many points do you think it's worth it to retake? I, ha- I have a number in mind and it's low. Yeah, I'm thinking of two. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say three. But, okay. but yeah, I mean, I think people should... One thing that I was encouraging people to do yesterday was to go to the um, LSAC website or just Google uh, LSAT GPA calculator. Right, Google LSAT yeah. GPA calculator, and you'll get the LSAC's um, calculator tool thing that they have online. And you can play around with it. You can put in your GPA, and you can put in your LSAT score, and then you can see what your chances are, um, you know, on average of getting in at any school that you're interested in. Um, and then you could bump up the score by three points or two points, and see what that does to your admissions chances. Now, at some schools, that two or three points is probably not going to make a difference because you were already like miles away from getting in and you're still miles away from getting in. Yeah. Or you were already a no-brainer uh, admit candidate. Like you were, you already had a 100% chance of getting in and now you have still a 100% chance of getting in. Mm-hmm. And, and that might be the case for some people at, some, at a lot of schools. It's just, well, two or three points isn't going to make any difference. But it's almost certain that there is some school 
on your list where that two or three LSAT points is going to make a significant difference in your average chances of getting into that school. Yeah. Um, and if we start talking about four or five or six points, then it just is obvious, right? Because mm -hmm. six points will be the difference between not getting in at some schools and getting a scholarship at that same school. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I just encourage people to go look at that LSAT GPA calculator thing and think about whether it's worth it. But yeah, you know, um, I, I hear people say like, well, I, I don't have the time and time. I can't afford to keep doing this. I like, I can't afford to take the LSAT again. Yeah. But yeah, oh boy, a few more LSAT points, especially if you've already documented it on record that you are capable of getting a few more LSAT points. Mm -hmm. I feel like that a few more LSAT points is worth another six weeks of, of, you know, mild studying another a couple hundred bucks to take the test and maybe buy another fresh book of practice tests and keep, keep grinding away at it for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. What else do we need to say about this? Uh, I guess it depends on which test you're looking at retaking and how determined you are to go this year. Okay. So for example, if you take the December LSAT and then you think, Oh, I could get a two more points in February. Uh, for some schools, that's not going to matter at all. Harvard, yeah. for example, which is, of course, a, an unusual exception, but they don't accept the February LSAT still. So okay. um, that's, that's an extreme example. It's the only one I know of. But, uh, you know, depending on – or if you take the February LSAT and you think, well, I'll take it in June, that's, that's probably not, probably not going to be worth it. Then again, yeah. things have changed. So it really depends on the school you're looking at and whether you think you can leverage that later LSAT yeah. score. I get a lot of like, hey, I, I, I got my score back and, you know, I didn't do as well as I hoped. I only got a, I got a 149 and I don't have super high hopes for what kind of school to go to. I'm just hoping I can get into University of San Francisco with a one, with a 149. And, um, yeah, I did a lot better on my practice tests. Yeah, you know, I got a 155 on my highest practice test, but, uh, I, I'm, I, I don't want to apply late in the cycle, so I'm just going to apply now with my 149. I'd rather apply now with my 149. Yeah. What, what do you say about that? Uh, does not matter. I mean, the, the, the timing app, this is like another formula, right? You were saying if you had three points or maybe two points, it's, it's worth considering to retake it. If you think you could get those points, uh, the other formula here would be, um, how late are you in the cycle? And I feel like it's kind of the same calculation. If you can get two or three more points, even though you're going to apply later, I feel like those two or three more points going to do more than compensate for your lateness yeah and if it's five or six points it's just a no-brainer i mean no -brainer. So, yeah the student yesterday was like well i talked to the admissions folks and they said that i'd have a better a chance of a better chance if i applied early in the cycle and i'm like well yeah all else equal applying early is better but mm -hmm. if your lsat score is going to be five points higher when you take it in december then you absolutely should hold off on the application now, retake it in December, and apply with a five points higher LSAT score. Yep. I mean, you look at their range of admitted students, and their range of admitted students is not a lot more than five points, or at least their 25th percentile to 75th percentile. It's not, it's, it's maybe probably five points in between those two. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about moving from the you know, lower quartile to the top quartile 
mm-hmm. um, with a couple months more of studying and I don't care that your application is going to be coming in a little bit later. Um, with five more points, you're you're hardly even the same candidate in their eyes anymore. Yeah. So I guess our message is almost always, I mean, if you're capable of higher and your practice test scores tell you that you're capable, then you probably should retake. Our, our, our advice would be changing if, this was, if we were talking about this in January. Yeah. Because by the time you take the February LSAT, it's, it's really, not, you know, the offers do get significantly worse after the February test. I mean, one thing you can do, though, and I would encourage people to do this if they're willing to put in the time, and that is even if you take the December LSAT and in January you don't get the score that you were hoping for, but maybe it's good enough to apply to some schools that you'd be interested in going to, um, I would say... Okay, take it, apply with that score, and then go ahead and sign up for the February LSAT and just take it. it. There's no guarantees that you could use it, but you never know what could happen. Maybe they don't get back to you on your application until early in March, and by that time your February LSAT has come out and you can say, hey, look at this. I mean, you're not planning on it, but it's better than just walking in the gate and being like, well, I didn't have... I didn't take it again, so I'm still stuck with that initial score that I applied with. They may not look at it. It all depends on the timing and how quickly they get back to you, but why not? Yeah, and just be careful in that situation is all I would say because I, I just see people end up taking a, taking bad offers when they do that plan, you know, because they've already applied. Oh, yeah, I would say only apply. So this is someone who's saying I'm either going to I, – I, I have a good enough score that I'm going to apply – um, but I haven't taken the LSAT three times and I think I could do slightly better. If you're, if you're willing to spend a little time, maybe take it and increase, you know, there's a chance that based on the timing of things, your score could come out and tip the scales for a school that's wavering on you. Yeah. Um, and just if you do a lot better, uh, you, you then might end up depending if the schools actually pay you what you're worth, you know, because like Mm -hmm. at at that point, if you do score six points higher, you now like deserve a much better offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the problem is that in March, they might not be very likely to give you that offer. Yeah. And then you just have to be willing to walk away and say, I'll see you again in September. I'll, I'll be, I'll be reapplying at the beginning of the cycle to your school and 15 other schools. And, you know, I'll be expecting to get a better offer at that point. Yeah. I mean, you don't say that, but, you know, that's what you're thinking. Yeah. I, I guess my, my general philosophy here is don't throw in the towel on the LSAT until you've, you feel like you've really hit your, your, you know, a good score that you're happy with and that you feel like you can reach. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's a super high leverage test and mm-hmm. uh, even a few points can make a big big difference for your really for your entire future so yeah we know that you don't love doing it we know that you would like to be done with it um, but you really shouldn't be done until you get the the best score you can you know or very close to the best score you can get yeah great well um, anything else on that no I think that's good Okay, so here's Paul. 
Paul is wondering whether it's possible to go from 146 to 170. Um, let me just read what he has to say here. He says, without sounding extremely jaded or out of touch with reality, um, I'd like to explain my situation and get your respected opinion. I work full-time in a fairly busy and aggressive line of work. I went to an undergrad at a top five public school, and I would really like to attend law school and become an attorney. I have a median level, a median level grades, um, but I know that to secure a seat at the school I'd like to attend, top 14, I need to hit the 170 mark. Um, I don't believe do you. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I don't believe you. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think anybody needs to hit the 170 mark. I yeah. don't I don't think that I mean I, I I never understand when people think that they they've picked out a number that they absolutely positively have to have in order mm -hmm. to get in. I yeah. there it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um cuz even if he's saying, well, this this would be a number that it, that would there is no number that's going to guarantee you a seat. Nope. Right? And mm -hmm. there's no minimum number really that you have to have in order to have a chance. I don't think there's a necessary number and I don't think there's a sufficient number. So I would soften mm. that a little bit. I think bit. there is a necessary number, but it's some, it's very, very, very low. Right? Like, the necessary heard, number is lower than you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 151 at Harvard or something like that. Right. Like, I, right. Yeah. I mean, now that's somebody who like built an orphanage at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> but you know, like yeah, among gun, yeah, gunfire. Right. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, with one leg, but yeah. it's, uh, but, but there is no, I just can't, I can't imagine saying, well, you, you're going to have to have a 170. This Paul went to a, says top five public school, whatever that means, median grades for top 14 programs. I mean, that means pretty damn good grades. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. He's in the median level for those top 14 programs. That's, that's uh, what, 3.8 or something like that? Three yeah, eight. so then I would think that if you have a median LSAT score to go along with your median grades, then you would be right in the wheelhouse of all of these schools that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, anyway, go ahead. Th there's also an obsession, I think, with 170. We've talked about this before, right? Yeah. It's like the difference between a 169 and 170. Oh, it sounds better, but that doesn't matter to them. To the, uh, the schools, I don't think. I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, it does look better. You could brag about it at the bar. <laughs> so he goes on and says, unfortunately, when I took my first full-length practice test, I scored a whopping 146. I plan on taking the test in February. So that's a few months from now. Um, and I just wanted to know if hitting a 170 mark is possible at my level, given the time, about four months, that I have to study and I also wanted to know if it is indeed in the realm of possibility, what type of studying I should be doing to get into that range. Any help would be appreciated. Okay, so first question, is it possible? Second, what should he do? So uh, I would say good news for Paul. Um, there's no guarantee that anyone is going to make it to any given score, but we're talking about a 24-point gain Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's, you know, that's a lot. Uh, 24 points is not super common, Yep. but it's not extraordinarily rare either. That's exactly right. Um, I, and especially, you know, he, he's saying he's, he's obviously like, um, unhappy with his starting practice test of a 146. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't think a 146 is particularly a horrible place to start, do you? No. Um, people always ask this on the first day of class yeah. after the diagnostic exam, and I tell them that most people, at least in the class, I don't know what's happening out in the world, but in the class, they typically seem to start between 140 and 155, but then I qualify that and say, look, there are people who start below that. Um, I've seen people start with... Uh, it, it, I've seen people start with a 120. It was, right. You know, a little surprising, but um, it it happens. And I've seen people, of course, start way higher than that. So I think there's just a whole range, and there's a whole range of reasons why he may have gotten that. Like if he took the test again right now, what score would he get? Would he get another 146-ish, or would he jump up to a 152? Because all of a sudden he's like, oh, well, I didn't realize I had to bubble in the last few questions. Yeah, right. So things like, I didn't realize there was no penalty for guessing. I didn't realize that I should just be randomly bubbling in bubbles at the end of the section. Totally. Um, or things like, I suck at the logic games. You know, if if he got four points on his logic games section, then mm -hmm. that makes him an even better candidate for improving off of his 146. Yeah. Uh, there's other stuff like that too, right? Some people just don't really understand what the questions are asking. Yep. Um, people really struggle with must be trues at the beginning of the prep because they don't, mm -hmm. they just don't understand how, how like simple it is basically <laughs> that you just have to pick the one that, that, that has to be true. The one that they said, mm -hmm. um, people like to pick sort of, you know, I think this is true in real life answers instead of picking the one that's true on the page on must yeah. be true questions. That happens a lot with higher score or like, you know, higher, higher uh, talent kinds of people. My guess is that Paul is going to end up, you know, I, I would think that 160 would be kind of a minimum target for mm -hmm. somebody who's starting at 146 with, you know, the rest of Paul's resume. Sounds like, you know, he's not, he's, he's got to be a pretty bright guy. And yeah. uh, I would think that 170 is absolutely within uh, the realm of possibility we would never know, right? I mean, you can't predict it. I, I can't predict it. Yeah. Um, no. I would never know until, you know, working with him for a month or something, and then I would start to get a better sense of, like, what his level really is. Yeah. So, um, long and short, yes, it's possible. Um, give it your best shot. Now, in terms of what should he do, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but yeah, I would. It's like listen to episodes really one through forty-five of the Thinking LSAT podcast, and you're going to get all sorts of tips about how to prep. Um, oh, what episode was that? One one through forty-five. Oh, <laughs> everything before this. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, it's like it's not like there's a magic like how do I get from one forty-six to one seventy, and it's like, ooh, well, we've never talked about that particular issue before. Yeah. Um, the thing that we always say to everybody is start now and do a little bit every day. And of the do a little bit every day is basically one 35 minute section mm -hmm. and then review it and figure out why you're missing the ones you're missing. Yeah. And if you can take a class, that's great. If you can work with a tutor, that's great. If you can work with a study partner, that's great. Um, there's some books out there that are great. There's all sorts of things. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't really think there's a magic study schedule or study plan or anything other than just like, well, get cracking. Yeah. Hey, speaking of uh, episodes one through 45. Yeah. 
uh, just last night, someone in my class came up to me and said, I started listening to the podcast and he went all the way back to episode one yeah. and then he went to episode two and I don't, I, I had no memory of this, but um, do you remember, and maybe it was just you who was, no, I guess we were both talking, but anyways, in episode two, we talked with Gemma. Do you remember that? Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Gemma was uh, a friend of his growing up. Oh wow! <laughs> and and so he heard, and he's like, "Wow, that sounds like that sounds like her." And he wasn't sure, but then he went onto the website and saw that it was her. So we've re- reunited uh, at least some childhood friends. Wow, that's cool. Um, yeah. I can't wait till we have the first thinking LSAT wedding between two <laughs> of our listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Well, hopefully they'll invite us. Um, yeah, except that I'm like the world's worst wedding guest. I just uh, I don't I don't know why. Do you like going to weddings? Uh, no, actually I shouldn't. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say I don't like it, but I said I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm sorry to all my friends and family. I it's, <laughs> I kind of find all the little events like a little corny. Like throw the flowers back. Oh, you got it. Oh no. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm going to my. Um, it's on my mind because I'm going to my cousin's um, wedding tonight. And it's just one of those things where it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's, it's cool. I mean, I, whatever. I love my cousin, my family. Great. I'll go see, you know, talk to my grandparents and play with my niece and stuff. And that's all fun. But, um, yeah. weddings yeah. are not exactly the number one most, most awesome thing. So yeah, you out there, all you out there in thinking all set nation, um, Congratulations, and you don't. You really don't need to invite me to your wedding. It's fine. No, yeah, please don't. I'll, I'll be just... perfectly happy. <laughs> I don't the think they want us to. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. We'll have a drink after. We can celebrate. Um, you know, later. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. So yeah, I think uh, jumping into the thirty-five minute sections, and um, after you start becoming familiar with what you're struggling with, uh, seeking out specific guidance on those things. That sounds great. Yeah, cool. All right, good luck, Paul. Tell us when you get your 170. We'll be yeah. very happy. Yeah, can't wait. So Vincent is, oh, he's happy about reading the question stem first. I know you'll like this, Nathan. Yeah. Uh, he says, I want to thank you and Ben for the podcast. Hearing a 180 test taker's approach to the test is extremely helpful. Um, I guess he's referring to us with that 180. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. So we appreciate it. Um, Vincent, I guess officially I've not gotten a 180, but anyways. Yeah, um, I, I, I have not officially gotten a 180 either. Um, I would put myself, I'd be a pretty good candidate for getting a 180 if I were to take it tomorrow. I'm sure Ben, you would be as well. I'd, I'd put, put a decent wager on myself. I mean, I would not guarantee a 180 by any means. I'd say I'm about a 50, 50. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. You, you take it every time the test comes out, right? You're just unofficially on your own. No, I do not understand really why people do that. Oh, you oh, mean, really? I do oh, that, oh, so. oh, oh! I thought you meant officially. I thought you meant officially. Oh no, no, not officially. Unofficially, yeah. when it when I when it comes out, I sit down and just take it. Oh no, I do not do that. What no, I do? No, I save it because I like to do. I like to. For I like to experience the test if possible. I like to experience it in the classroom first having never seen it before hmm. because it's fun for me to to like i love especially like with the logical reasoning i love 
I love working my way through the questions and predicting the answers before looking at the answer choices, <laughs> you know, on a question that I've never seen before and, and sort of demonstrating that to the class. And I guess it's a little bit of showing off, but it's also a little bit of just, I really want to get across the, the, the idea that, Hey, this shit is totally learnable and easy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just telling you what the answer is because I've seen the question a million times. Yeah. And I'm telling you what the answer is because this shit just, it's just repeats itself and it's so predictable and you can just kind of common sense your way to figuring these questions out. So yeah, I no, I like to do the high wire act. Um, like, like with the logic games too, I like to say, okay, well you guys took the, you know, this test that just came out, um, I'll, I will have it in one of my upcoming classes and they'll, they'll do it as a practice test. And then I'll go into class and I'll explain it to them. And like the logic games, I, I like it to be that I've never seen the game before. And then I've got my whiteboard and my dry erase marker and I just do the game for them for the first time ever. Um, I don't know. I feel like that authentic, I can only do that authentically once. Yeah, I agree. Uh, although I guess that's why I take it because I'm interested in how I approach the questions with the time limit and so forth, just as like a reminder to myself. Uh, I see, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like one thing that I notice is that teaching, you're going through the questions a little bit slower, sure. right? So it reminds me, oh yeah, like this is how quickly I need to move to kind of um, stay on a pace that I feel comfortable with. Um, as opposed to sort of like, you know, talking through everything. It's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Moving on. Um, and so I kind of just become reflective of like what I'm doing. I see. I see. Do you go into like a special room, a special LSAT cave or anything when you do it? No. In do you fact, light a candle? I, for some reason, people always know. <laughs> No, I just sit down and take it. It's usually actually kind of challenging, which makes me a little more sympathetic to those who are trying to squeeze in uh, full-length tests every now and then because I'm like, oh, man, got to go find two and a half hours. Um, but I will take it, and it seems like every time I'm sitting there taking the reading comp section, someone calls me, and for some bizarre reason, I pick it up like half the time. <laughs> yeah, man, you got to put your phone into airplane mode. I know, that's what that. I tell people. Yep, yep, it's really important. If you don't carve out that time, you know, how are you ever going to learn how to focus for those 35-minute sections? So good, so good. Thank I think you. you should have some incense. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not make it any stranger than it is. <laughs> Taking it else at every three months, yeah, that's bizarre. Um so the reason I brought that up is because I, I have definitely gotten 180 on those tests, although it's not every time, which, so I'd agree with you. It's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I'd be willing to bet money, but um, I wouldn't say it's guaranteed. In any case, thanks, Vincent, for thinking of us as, at least in your mind, as, as, that, as a 180 test taker, maybe you're referring to us. But anyways, um, it says, da, 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 da. okay, I took your advice to read the argument first and noticed an immediate change. There was much less distraction instead of thinking, oh, a flaw question. Where's the flaw? I was getting 18 and 18 on LR on my best days when reading the question first. Today I got 21 and 22 on LR after a couple of days of practicing reading the argument first. I look forward to the upcoming podcast and your book. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I have to agree with this a lot. I, I'm more sympathetic to people who want to read the question stem first if they seem to find it beneficial for them. But what I always tell them, for at least for myself, is that I, that I feel like more important than knowing, oh, what should I be looking for or what are the insights I can gain from the question stem itself is simply what the heck is this person saying? I feel like so many people's problems are, oh, well, I thought they said this and it's just slightly off. And it's like, eh, that's why you missed the problem. Or that's why you didn't quite see how those ideas connected together. Yeah. So. Yeah, you're, the, the, I feel like reading the question stem first distracts people from their real job, which is just to figure out what the hell the argument says. I mean, mm -hmm. people are so bad at just even figuring out the conclusion of the argument. And if you're going into it with like, oh, this is a strengthened question. Oh, this is a weakened question. Oh, this is a necessary assumption question. You've got all of these other techniques and semantics and shit in your head. And then you're trying to hold on to that oh, sufficient assumption, sufficient assumption, sufficient assumption while you're reading the argument. And then now you get done with the argument and you don't even know what the argument said anymore. Mm -hmm. Or you just, it didn't sink in. So I really strongly encourage people not to read the question stem first. I've had a million students, just like Vincent. Vincent, thank you for writing in. I've had a million students who have had this exact same experience where it's like, yeah, I took a class and the first thing they told me was to read the question stem first. And I thought that's how you're supposed to do it. And I did mediocre on the logical reasoning. And then Nathan, as soon as you told me to stop doing that, I stopped doing that and I just immediately improved my score. So I'm not saying that's everybody. It's definitely not 100% guaranteed, but um, I'm still looking for a compelling argument why you should read the question stem first. I mean, it, it just doesn't work for me. doesn't work for anybody that I know. Um, I don't get it. I, I feel like it's just one of those things that, you know, people have been saying it for so long that they believe it to be true. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm a skeptic, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a question everything kind of a guy. And that's one of those things where it's just like, I really do not see the value in it. And I actually see a lot of harm in it. Mm -hmm. So, um, thanks Vincent for reinforcing that. And, uh, listeners out there, Ben and I both, we, we do not encourage people to read the questions them first. In fact, we encourage people to, uh, you know, stop doing that or experiment at least if that's what you've been doing and you're not thrilled with your logical reasoning score, um, you know, give it a shot the other way for what a month, five yeah. practice tests, you know, you yeah. got to give it a serious, it's not just like one test. Um, you got to give, you know, it might take you a while to break yourself of that habit, unlearn that habit, but, uh, definitely give it a shot. Yeah. Um, I agree. So Dylan is wanting to know how to answer abstract questions. These are flaw questions, uh, method of reasoning questions, uh, the role that something is playing in the argument questions. Okay. The answer choices tend to be very abstract. Okay. Sorry, did I cut you off? No, uh -uh. I'm just oh, okay. I'm, I'm listening. Um, so anyways, he says, I've been listening to your podcast a lot lately and think it's really great. Thanks. Dylan, it has a lot of information that is not only about the LSAT, but all the whole admission process. Cool, cool. Okay, I'm signed up for the December LSAT, and I'm planning for my admission cycle to start next year. I realize 
Okay, so yeah, he's applying to applying to apply this cycle for next year. It sounds like. Is that right, or is that? I'm a little confused by that. I don't. I think it's not maybe material to the discussion. Oh, it's really important. We got figured out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so uh, I realized I have a lot of time to study and plan to take the LSAT three times in a row if need be. Okay. He's just saying I'm planning to, you know, plan for the best, uh, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And sure. if I need to take it, it three sense. times, we... I'm going to take it three times. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, we suggest that before, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so he's taking three timed LSATs, all starting at 8.30 a.m. and have noticed a huge trend with all three of them. By the way, a little pause there for a second. He's taking yeah. them at 8.30 a.m., yep. I think, to simulate the test. What yep. do you think about that? Oh, I think it's great if you have the flexibility in your schedule to do that. I mean, you know, one thing it does is it just re removes excuses, possible mm -hmm. excuses. Sure. I get sick of hearing students say like, oh yeah, you know, I just, it was so early in the morning and I just couldn't, I, I, I didn't do, I, I, I just wasn't ready for it. I just didn't do as well as I could have because, you know, I did much better on my practice test and I did horrible on the test because it started at 8.30 a.m. Um, Okay. <laughs> one, one thing you could do is you could do what Dylan is doing, which is just, hey, why don't you start getting up early and practice and the real test is going to be at 8.30 a.m.? Then why don't you do your practice test at 8.30 a.m.? I think that's great. Um, you know, controlling your destiny as much as you can. And yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, the truth is, I, though, I think that really people come up with lots of excuses for why they don't understand the test. Mm -hmm. And this seems like one of those excuses. Yeah. You know, it's like, I didn't do that well because it was early. Okay. <laughs> it's very easy to say. Yeah. It's impossible to, to disprove, you know, so it's just like, if that makes you feel better, that's fine. I get a lot of like, also, you know, I took the test in a, one of those classrooms that had the little fold out desky thing, the little, the little half desk thing that folds mm -hmm. over into your lap. Mm -hmm. And like, because of that, I didn't do as well as I could have. Mm -hmm. uh, or there was some noise in the room and because of that I didn't do as well as I could have yeah and all that shit is like I don't know I feel like there's just sort of a that's like kind of just rationalizing you know yeah um, so whatever if it makes you feel better fine but I don't I as far as I, I don't, I'm not sure I really believe that that's the actual case um, people who say they couldn't focus during the test it's very frequently because you're just not very good at the test. Mm -hmm. uh, for people who are good at the test, I think it's much easier to just like get into the zone of doing the test because you understand it. Mm -hmm. And when you don't understand it, it's very easy to space out and start thinking about the guy, you know, three seats away who's tapping his pencil or whatever that's distracting you. And now your, your, your brain is like protecting you, right? It's like protecting your ego by yeah. coming up with these excuses. Um, but I, when I hear those stories, I just kind of go, well, you know, based on your practice test scores, you didn't, you're, you're not really that awesome at the test. And so maybe what you should have done is prep harder, prep longer, prep smarter, you know, do your homework, show up for class, ask yeah. questions. Um, cause when I didn't, I didn't see people doing those things, then I know they're not going to do very well on the test. And then it doesn't matter. I hear all the, their excuses after the test, but it's like, well, those are just excuses. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I'm not trying to be a dick or anything, but no, no, that's okay. Okay. That's, I think that's your job on this podcast, right? Well, I do think you're the good cop 
and I'm the bad I'm guy. I'm trying to change. It's really hard. <laughs> Don't question your true nature, Ben. Just <laughs> you do you, and I'll do me. Okay. All right. I'll embrace it. Well, I have two thoughts about 8:30 a.m. I would say if you're a night owl, um, this is actually pretty. This could be helpful because of the amount of focus that's required. I think sometimes people who go to bed late and wake up really late, um, and are normally almost asleep at this time, might see a difference with uh, starting to practice. Although I don't think it's really important necessarily to start at 8.30 because the official test is probably not going to start until 9.30 or 10. But the idea of taking a test in the morning I think could be beneficial so to kind of get you on a more normal schedule. The other Yeah, I mean, this I had, sorry to interrupt for just a second. Like, no, oh, go ahead. Like, you know, put yourself on notice. If this is you and you know you're a night owl and you know you hate getting up early, well, you need to get over that. You know, yeah. don't let yourself use that as an excuse for doing shitty on the LSAT. So, sorry, start going to bed earlier. Start getting up earlier. Start doing your practice tests in the morning. Absolutely. Just, you want to remove that possibility. You you just don't want, even, you know, subconsciously, you don't want to have the possibility of making that excuse. Yeah. So, also, just, I mean, <laughs> I like sleeping in too, but... You know, people complaining about having to get up for an 8.30 test. It's, it's kind of like, um, so you plan to have a job? You, you plan for your career to like never have to do anything at 8.30? Yeah. I don't think the judge is going to really be too interested in your, you know, sorry, your honor. I'm a night owl. I don't really think that's going to, that's probably not a valid argument. Anyway, sorry, Ben. Uh, what good. else? What else are you gonna say? Uh, yeah, the one other thing was um, I just read somewhere that uh, if you schedule a specific time for an activity, your chances of actually doing that activity go up three hundred percent. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is by some someone who is writing on uh, Harvard Business Review. But anyways. I think that's very true. If you are always planning to do Saturday morning practice exams, then when people say, oh, hey, blah, 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 or let's do this on Friday, and you're thinking, oh, well, I got this test, it becomes part of your schedule, and you'll naturally start sort of defending it and uh, you know making changes in your life that will make it more likely that it will happen than it would if you just woke up and you're like, oh, I was going to do one this morning, but... Or, I mean, I didn't have a time in mind, and it just kind of, the weekend got away from me. Yeah, it got away from me. Right, exactly. You know, it's easier to do, like, it, it's easier to go to a yoga class that starts at X time and that you're, like, used to going to. It's much easier yeah. to do that than it is to be like, well, I got this app on my iPad, and I'm just going to do it in my apartment, you know? Oh, I could do it any time. Well, the fact that you can do it any time frequently keeps you from doing it at all. So... Yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. 300%, huh? Yeah, that's what they said. So um, thanks, Dylan. I know you're already doing that, so you're convinced of that. But uh, for others who are thinking about it, that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, he says that he's noticed a huge trend with all three of the practice tests that he's taken in my LR section. The biggest weakness I have is on abstract questions. My accuracy on question stems like method of reasoning, role, and flaw questions is very low. I'm currently scoring around a 158, but I run out of time on each section. Um, when he goes back and tries to figure things out, he realizes it's, it's really these abstract questions that are giving him trouble and getting wrong. Uh, da, da, da. Anyways, he wants advice on these questions, which is 
makes sense. A lot of people, I think, shut down in these answer choices. They just say they're so abstract and they kind of give up, which is not good. What advice do you give people, Nathan, normally for these kinds of questions? So <clears throat> for flaw questions, we, I think we start there. Okay, sure. The one really nice thing about flaw questions is that, um, yeah, the, the answer choices are going to be described in the abstract. So, you know, the argument will go like, um, it's a fact that if you're eaten by a shark, then you're dead. John is dead. Therefore, John must have been eaten by a shark. Right. That's the that's the that's the argument. That's a flawed mm -hmm. argument. Sure. And commonsensically, it's very easy to look at that argument and go, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Eating eaten by a shark will definitely kill you. But just because John's dead doesn't mean that he had to be eaten by a shark. There's a million other things that might kill you as well. Right. That's a very mm -hmm. common sense objection. And everybody, I think, naturally can do that. Um, but the correct answer, if that was a flaw question, the correct answer is the argument has confused a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Yeah. And when you're not practiced on the LSAT, you, you might never have heard confuse a sufficient condition for a necessary condition before in your life. If you've never took a formal logic class, you might not have any idea what sufficient condition means or necessary condition means. So you need to do a lot of practice with the flaw questions to, to learn that that's what that flaw looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, and you'll start to, especially because they test the same flaws over and over and over, uh, that one particularly confusing a sufficient condition for a necessary condition is on every single test and you, it, it'll from repeated exposure, you'll just start to, to click right into the abstract, um, answer, you know, you'll go, you'll see the argument, which is very detail, concrete. And then you'll see them make that flaw and you'll immediately just say, oh, that's sufficient, necessary flaw. Yeah. Um, the other good thing about flaw questions is that the wrong answers tend to be, they tend to repeat themselves. Um, they will, so the sufficient, necessary flaw, for example, the argument confuses a necessary condition with a sufficient condition or the argument confuses a sufficient condition with a necessary condition that answer will be on other flaw questions as wrong answers. Mm -hmm. So the, the, you'll see a question where what they actually do is they confuse correlation with causation. But one of the wrong answers will be confuses sufficient with necessary. Yeah. And the more familiar you get with all of those flaws, the easier it'll become to just get rid of the wrong answers on a flaw question. Yeah. So one thing that I recommend when people are doing flaw questions is that they, they really look at the wrong answers. Even if they know the right answer, they can look at the wrong answers and think about what the argument would have had to have said in order to make that the right answer. Yeah. Or like to just be sure that they know what that flaw looks like. Like common wrong answers, right? Um, equivocates with regard to a, cent a central concept. Mm -hmm. That's a common wrong answer, right? Every once in a while, it's the right answer, but it's yeah. a pretty common wrong answer. And you have to know what that means. So what's that mean, Ben? Equivocates with regard to a central concept. 
Or can you give an example? Um, if you wait, if I actually, when you say equivocate, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of where the the meaning shifts. Yeah. yeah. Through the the argument, I guess I just that language. Uh, I'm I was thinking of illicitly shifts or same thing. Know, same thing. Yeah. So the equivocates one is not one I, I'm not as familiar with that usage, but yeah, that's the that's the flaw. Equivocates with regard to a sensual concept or um, wait, what's the other one you just said? Uh, the a key term. Oh, illicit allows term, it to illicitly, illicitly shift in meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that's the same thing. It's the same flaw, and yeah. all it is is you used the word mad to mean angry in one of your premises, and then in your conclusion, you used the word mad to mean crazy. Mm -hmm. And so you've let the word mad change from angry to crazy, and those are maybe similar, but they're not the same thing. You have equivocated with regard to a central concept, or you have uh, allowed a key term to shift illicitly in meaning. The point is that the more familiar you get with all of those flaws, the easier the flaw questions are going to be because you'll know what the you'll know that the wrong answers are wrong. You'll just be like, well, no, they never let a, sh a key term shift in meaning. Yeah, that can't be the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and all, anyways, I I think that's one use that like with my logical reasoning encyclopedia, I like to because I frequently do that in my explanations. Is I'll 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 go through the argument and I'll say, well, here's what the flaw is and that's what I'm looking for. And sure enough, I'll find it in the right answers. But then mm -hmm. in the wrong answers, it's like, well, no, I know what, um, you know, they're describing here. Um, they're describing circular reasoning. And I know yeah. what circular reasoning looks like. Circular reasoning is uh, every word in the Bible is true because it says so in the Bible that every word in the Bible is true. <laughs> right? That's what circular yeah. reasoning looks like. So unless the argument did that, then that can't be the answer. Yeah. So I guess maybe um, particularly with flaw questions, people starting out do struggle a lot with flaw questions. But I think that just um, practice there is going to make those a lot easier. Yeah. One thing I would add to that is, um, and that that by the way, that is so true, especially when it comes to necessary and sufficient. I think... People have no idea that in an if-then statement, the if clause is called the sufficient condition and the then clause is called the necessary condition. So when the answer choice starts saying, oh, the argument confuses a necessary condition with a sufficient condition, people are like, I, what the heck just happened? I have no idea what that even means, you know? Right. But as you get familiar with that, that becomes a huge... Um, uh, advantage because you you're like there was no if then statements in this argument or there was no uh, things that are equivalent to if then statements in this argument so this answer choice is wrong before you even really finish reading it um, you know you're looking for something else whether that's correlation causation or part to whole or whatever yep I think the the one maybe bit of encouragement that I would give to listeners who think that they're struggling with flaw questions or with these other um, strategy of argumentation questions or method of reasoning questions is just that they the test just really repeats itself so much. And I don't think you can do five or ten practice tests without it starting to sink in. You're, mm -hmm. you're going to get tuned in. I like to use the sort of like a radio analogy, you know, where... The more you do it, the more you're just going to start to get 
tuned in to the LSAT radio network. It's like you're going to be receiving the the waves coming from the coming from what Connecticut, um, <laughs> Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, sorry, Pennsylvania. Um, it's all the same to me. I'm on the, I'm on the West Coast. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So the it it looks like. Greek though some of it looks like Greek at first, right? Confuses a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. What? What are you yeah. even talking about? Well, okay. Do five or ten practice tests. Take an LSAT class. Read some books. Read some blog posts. Uh, send us an email at help at thinkinglsat.com. And you know y- you can't do this for a month without that becoming second nature. I think. Yeah. If you have been doing it for a month and you don't know what the different what a what the sufficient and necessary flaw looks like, then yeah, I mean, you need to fire your LSAT teacher, <laughs> right? That's just like, yeah. that's one that like, okay, did you get, did you pick up what a sufficient necessary flaw looks like? Because that should have been pretty much right away in your LSAT class and it should be repeated in your LSAT class over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that like, if you don't get that, you're never going to get it. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a bunch of other ones, too. Uh, we talked about common flaws a couple episodes ago, but those mm-hmm. common flaws repeat themselves not only as the right answer, but they repeat themselves as the wrong answers. And so then now you've got two ways to get to the correct answer, right? You can either positively identify it or you can just eliminate um, the ones that, you know, are not present in the argument. Yeah. Um, one thing I would add to what you're saying there is that as you're going through the answer choices, um, and this is true for flaw questions, for method of reasoning questions, for role questions, I tend to break the answer choices down into different parts. So for example, if the answer choice says, treats the evidence that there is an apparent bias as evidence that blah, 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 the very first thing I would ask myself before I even finish reading the answer choice is, does this argument treat evidence that there is an apparent bias, blah, blah, you know, as something? Does it even do this? Is there even evidence that there is an apparent bias? Because if if that part of the answer choice doesn't match up with anything you saw in the original passage, then it's wrong. And I think a lot of times people will read the whole answer choice yeah. and kind of like gloss over and it's like I'm stopping at key points and just saying, does it fail to take this into account? Let's just start there. Oh, yeah, it does. Okay. Um, is this a thing that it's failing to take into account a problem or whatever, you know? Yeah. Or does, uh, does the argument infer um, from known or from several studies and it's like, well, did it infer anything from studies before I even get to the rest of that answer choice? Yeah, were there several studies or was there just one? Yeah. Right. You know what I think that I think you're talking about, Ben, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're talking about a difference in mindset. Um, students, they they think that what they're doing is looking for the correct answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they they read answer choices like hoping that it's the right answer or trying to make the answer choice into the right answer, trying to interpret the answer in such a way that it'll be the right answer. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that what an expert does is really just assumes that the answers are wrong and reads them only far enough to confirm the hypothesis that they're wrong. Sure. And then eliminates them and moves on to the next answer. 
Yeah. So I, I get a lot of people are like, well, I picked this one because it says, and then they say three words. It's like, well, because it says th these three words. Yeah. And, and it's like, right. But in order for this to be the right answer, it has to be all the way through. It has to be right. So mm -hmm. I don't care what's good about the answer choice. Yeah. I, I, what I care about is it has to have an absence of anything that makes it wrong. And all it takes is one word to make it wrong. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, people don't quite get that, that, that we're, we're really disrespecting those answer choices, right? I mean, we're not trying to help out the answer choices. No. Four out of five of them are wrong. Each answer choice has an 80% chance of being wrong. So when I start reading A, I'm looking to get rid of it. It's like, well, I know this is probably garbage. Let me see if I can get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And then I do that pretty quickly and move on. And that's where we go fast, right? We don't. We frequently don't have to read the entire answer choice. Yeah. It, once it goes off the rail, if it says several studies and there was only one study mentioned, that is not the answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what the rest of it says. It's not gonna. It's not gonna resurrect itself. Yeah, it's already wrong. So then we don't have to read the rest of it. We can just move on to the next one. But I think there's a shift there, right? There's a, that's a different mindset, because if you if you were looking to make that the right answer, then you might be willing to like glaze over the fact that it's already conclusively wrong. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. you're like latching on to two words that you feel like matched the argument. Yeah. And then, you know, you're like you're like you're I don't know, you're trying too hard to help the answer. Yeah. And instead, you should be looking to dismiss answer choices. And then the one correct answer should convince you that it's the answer. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I would um, I, I I'm anticipating that sometimes people will take this too far and they'll start reading an answer choice and it will say, um, you know, infers a hypothesis from and then they stop at hypothesis and they say, uh, there is no hypothesis, uh, therefore this is wrong, which I think, okay, now they have the right mindset. They're looking for things that would disqualify the answer choice, but they they per, they impose too narrow of a definition sure. on some of these abstract words. And it's like, well, wait, hold on. A conclusion could be a hypothesis. That could be what they're trying to sure. prove or sure. whatever. I mean, I think, though, even in that scenario, they're probably going to eliminate all the other answers as well. Right. So now they get to the end and they've eliminated all five. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I say this all the time. If you're not if you're not eliminating all five every once in a while, I don't think you're doing it right. Like, I really don't think you're being critical enough if you don't occasionally eliminate all five answers. Yeah. Um, and I think and mm -hmm, you'll have. Well, when that happens, then, OK, you'll have to, like, sort of relax your standards a little bit. And go back through again, and then you might understand, oh, I see, hypothesis, okay, I can interpret that to mean conclusion here. Okay, this isn't as bad as I thought. But, oh boy, those other four really were garbage. Okay, so this one is the answer. Yeah. Um, what I find myself doing is I'll hit that word hypothesis, and I'll be like, hmm, not exactly what I was expecting. Right. But then I'll keep reading through, and then maybe there's something else later in the answer choice. It's like, no, this is clearly wrong. So then I can cross it out and move on. But if not, then, oh, well, maybe maybe this is it after all. One thing is 
I think what happens to those people is they, they definitively cross out that answer choice because they didn't like the word hypothesis or whatever. Um, and that definitely could be a problem in other contexts. But they cross it out and then they, you know, they get down to the end and they have D and E or something and they don't like either one. But then like you're saying, they start talking themselves <laughs> into one answer choice or the other. And this is just a general test strategy. If you're uncomfortable with the answer choice that you're choosing, it's probably a sign that you need to reread some of the other answer choices yeah. or a reread some part of the passage because you should feel very confident about the vast majority of answer choices that you select. That you select yeah. D and you say, yep, this is it, moving on. If you're having that doubt, then maybe you get to the point where you say, okay, I really can't see the difference between A and D, so I'm going to pick one and move on for the sake of time. But you should be aware of the questions that you have doubts about, and it should be only one or two or three of the questions that you actually attempt, depending on how many questions you actually attempt. Yeah, you right. I mean, the test needs to, it, it really should be easy for you. It should feel, not, not, not like it's not work, but you should be feeling like, yep, I got that one right. Yep, when, and when you, you should know on. the ones that you aren't, aren't right. not sure. Right, like, you I, should, yeah, there should be no doubt that like, well, these three questions, you know, I did 18 questions in the section, I'm pretty damn sure on 15 of them, but these three that I, you know, I, I narrowed it down to a 50-50, I'm almost certain that the wrong answers are wrong, mm -hmm. but I narrowed it down to a 50-50, and I, I, you know, I kind of liked two of the answers, uh, you know, those ones, yeah, that should happen one eighth of the time or one tenth of the questions that you attempt, right? A yeah. couple a couple questions per section, something like that, that, you, sure. that you're allowed to be uncertain about. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you just, if you're uncertain on a third of the questions that you've attempted, then you're doing too many questions and you just have to slow down and start understanding the test better. Yeah, you're either doing too many questions or after the test is over, you're not reviewing them. It's almost like you should have things like mentally checked off. Yeah. Granted, you're gonna get you're gonna get blindsided occasionally. Oh, I thought D was right for sure, and then it was E. But that's uh, that should be rare, and you should know which ones you're unsure about. When people, I think a lot of times they start out and they're like, "Well, I just I felt good about uh, you know some of them. I don't know which ones." It's like you're not thinking about this test carefully enough. You're not thinking about these answers carefully enough. You're just going for the answer that feels good. Yeah, latching on to two words and being like, yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I, I, I do think that the, you need to have more of a chip on your shoulder and you need to be more aggressive and you need to be more critical. The, the mindset that works for me is really uh, to be eliminating answers. They're, mm -hmm. they're just, you can't spend too much time and you can't be convincing yourself that one of these answers is the right answer because it's got a four out of five chance of being not the answer. Yeah. And, and you really need to be, it's like sifting through, getting rid of the garbage. There's only going to be a couple answers that are even close. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, I think you'll find that the test is a lot easier to get through that way. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned, um, you know, not reviewing your tests. And we've talked about this on the show, obviously. Yeah. Um, for, for listeners who did take the October 2015 test, mm -hmm. or whenever you're listening to this show, if you've taken an actual LSAT test and got your results back, 
and you're not happy with it and you're continuing to study, where do you think they should start then? What's the first thing they should do? They just took the October test. Their results just came back yesterday. Oh, they should panic? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I would... Are you saying go back and review that test? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, that is where I will start with you know any of my students who are unhappy with their results and they're, they plan on retaking it in December. Um, they have a golden opportunity to take that October test. I mean, they have it, right? They, they paid for it. They've attempted it. They made a bunch of mistakes. They made more mistakes than they um, are proud of. And I, I'm just amazed at how many people want to like just put that into a drawer and never look at it again. Like they go get a book and they start doing new practice tests. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you here a little bit. Okay. I, depending on, um, but it's for a different purpose. I completely agree with reviewing and I okay. would think there's immense value even in reviewing the official test you took, like what happened, which sections, um, did I do poorly in, but in terms of reviewing the actual questions on that test, the only reason I would encourage someone not to do that is if they have taken a lot of tests already, I would say, okay, don't review the specific questions and save that test for later so that you can take it again in a couple months and it will be kind of like a new test. Okay, I guess. If they've done every practice test from 40 on and they're like seriously running out of materials, then I would do mm -hmm. that. But in my experience, most people just haven't done that much. They're, most people, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Most I mean, your students might be harder workers than mine, but my, I, I, it's rare. There are some, but it's kind of mm -hmm. rare that people are really actually running out of practice tests. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So in general, if you have, especially if you have a lot of recent tests um, still on the table, go review that. Understand everything that happened. Yeah, I mean, you've especially the ones earlier in the section, right? The the the. You look at your logical reasoning and you're like, boy, I'm used to getting 22 correct on the logical reasoning, but on this section I got 16. Um, and people are like, get super discouraged, which I understand, but okay, well, let's, let's just start. It, it is what it is, right? I mean, let's start dealing with it. Yeah. Hey, you missed number four here. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's dig in and let's analyze that and let's figure out why you missed that. There's something you did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And if, if you, when you review it, if it's obvious that like, you know, you should never in a million years have missed that question and you picked some ridiculous answer choice, then maybe we can, we can chalk it up to nerves or mm -hmm. some sort of test day distraction or whatever. But if you review it and, and you really kind of still don't get it, or there's something kind of confusing to you about it, then that's an opportunity. And yeah. the way you're going to get a test, the way you're going to get a better score in December is by learning from those kinds of mistakes. So yeah. anyway, I do encourage people, uh, if you've got your October test in your hand and, and you are pissed off about it, um, well, you know, use it to improve. Um, whether that's reviewing on your own or with a tutor or whatever, I mean, you, you got to dig in and, and start fixing those mistakes. Yeah. All right. So the last question is, would you pronounce this Kalen? Um, I was going to say Kellen, but I, Kellen? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not Names really these days. I don't know. 
All right, so uh, she writes and says, I'm a frequent listener um, and a big fan. Thanks, awesome. And thanks for writing in, by the way. Many of your episodes were tremendously helpful for me during the prep for the October LSAT, so thank you both. Great, thank you. I had a couple of questions I thought you might be able to tackle. One, while I feel good about my October LSAT take, hmm, well, now she would know what score she got, but she didn't know when she wrote this. In any case, uh, there's still uncertainty, and she's wondering how to proceed regarding studying in case of a need for a December retake. Well, I guess we've kind of... Start by reviewing your October test, assuming yeah. <laughs> you have enough materials around. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for, those of, for those listeners who are in her sort of position, you've taken the test, but you haven't gotten your score back yet, and you're wondering what to do with that time, especially between the October and December LSAT, I would say, okay, take a couple days off after the official LSAT, but then... Get started. Why not take 35-minute sections a day? You only have eight weeks, nine weeks between those two tests. That's going to go really fast. So um, that would be my general advice for someone who's deciding or not sure whether they're going to retake it. Just plan on retaking because you can always quit at any moment. Yeah, that kind of goes along with the hope for the best but plan for the worst thing, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's not – I don't think it has to be that horribly painful to do – 35 minutes a day or an hour a day of mm-hmm. prep and get into the rhythm of it. I, I really frequently hear people say that they've started to actually enjoy it by the time they're done prepping. It, mostly people say that who have done like a kind of a civilized prep, like a little bit every day. Yeah. People are like, oh yeah, you know, it's kind of fun actually. Um, and those people do tend to do really well. So yeah, if you're waiting for your results and there's, and you think you'd maybe didn't do that great, why not do a section here or there? Sure. We can always get better at logic games, right? We can always sort of reinforce our abilities with the logic games. Even if you're just redoing games that you've done before, um, just to stay sharp, you know? Yeah. I completely agree. Um, So her second question is... Okay, this is about traffic. This is the speeding ticket one. I've noticed that many schools have included a requirement to disclose any traffic violations in their applications, having received the first two speeding tickets of my life within the past four months. So, hold on. Why? What's happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Become a lead foot recently, or just never caught before, I guess. But anyways, this has presented a frustrating issue. Um... One of the tickets have been removed from my record, but I'm unsure if I should disclose it anyway. In general, do you guys think speeding tickets can harm a candidate's admission chances in any way? If so, how would you handle this? My only reaction would be it depends on how fast you're speeding. Otherwise, I don't think they matter at all. And I would err on the side of disclosing and then just explaining that it got removed because it's unimportant rather than trying to hide that information. I mean, there might be a more definitive answer there, but... I don't think you can get in too much trouble if you disclose and explain than if you try to... Yeah, I think I've heard um, traffic violations really don't count, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, One thing that she could absolutely do is just call the law school, one of the law schools that she's interested in applying to, and and say, hey, I have a question about your application. I mean, they're going to be happy to answer that question. Sure. And... There's no shame in saying I got a speeding ticket. I mean, when you hear somebody say they got a speeding ticket, do you like judge them morally? I I I don't. Uh, um, generally, I stop. Uh, stop associating with them. Yeah, because you're on the straight and narrow path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I can't do that actually because I, I have 
a, a life of speeding tickets. So. Really? Yeah, isn't that crazy? How many and tickets I, do you have? Not that many, but um, uh, it's and it's not like I'm some sort of guy that's like driving around and pissing everyone off. I just um, I don't know. Uh, when I'm driving into the city, I don't realize how fast I'm going. A lot of people drive really fast around here, and sometimes it just catches me off guard. But I did make a mistake when I was younger. I was speeding, um, of course, and I got home and I told my parents one uh, speed that I was going. <laughs> and then, which was just dumb because, of course, the ticket came and they're like, oh, and I had to relive that whole, like, painful, you know, punishment. Like, oh, it wasn't actually 65, it was 75. Well, that's just wonderful. Um, now we now you lie to us and it's faster than we thought. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. And so then re- recently around here, I, I just like seriously going like apparently it's it's like a misdemeanor or something how fast I was going, but I didn't realize it and I was just like, oh, sorry. Yeah. I can't say anything about speed. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. I would. Yeah. I I would just go ahead and I, I think you can call the law school. I think you could also. Um, just I don't have an application form. You could just go ahead and disclose it. Just don't make it a ten sentence thing, right? One sentence. Yeah. You can oh, even yeah. say I'm not sure if this is the kind of thing that I'm supposed to disclose, but I got this ticket and one of them's been removed. Yeah. And then, and then we could do what <laughs> what we said with that other person. I can't remember her name now. So what? <laughs> or whatever you said. <laughs> I got a speeding ticket. What? What? What now? <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I really don't think it's going to be an issue. I have a feeling that if you call the school, they're going to just say, don't even bother. In general, if you're not sure, I think that it's usually best to just professionally go ahead and disclose. Mm. If you do disclose it, I would do so with a fairly somber tone. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to like belittle it or, you know, I, I don't think you want to like, you don't want to crack any jokes you know, you don't want to be like, oh, luckily they didn't catch me these other times when I was, you know, or something like that. Um, or you don't want to like say, you know, like, oh, such bullshit. You know, you don't, you, that's not how you want to come off. You want to come off like respectful. Um, it was an accident. I had no idea I was going that fast. That's it. And, yeah. I, and it can really be one sentence, right? Whatever you do, don't waste the admissions folks time. Um when I read application stuff, it, it always looks really wordy to me. And I understand that, you know, as a student, it's your experience and it's your life and it's all really important to you. But you got to think about your audience and your audience is reading um, mountains and mountains of these stories. And they all, you know, a lot of times they tend to sound the same. And how interested are they really going to be in this disclosure about your traffic tickets? So to the extent that you can keep it brisk... I think you, I think you really probably should. Yeah. And that's the case with all of these kinds of disclosures, right? I mean, I'm not an expert in this. I think you'd want to talk to, um, Zach Kalo, or you'd want to talk to Anne Levine, or you'd want to talk to somebody else who's an expert in this. If, if you really had some serious issues, a DUI or something like that, I think you probably need to get some professional help, but to, to, to like, you know, craft this disclosure statement. But if there's something else that's on your record and it's like a, you know, pretty typical kind of like a minor in possession of alcohol when I was in my freshman dorms and it's on my record or whatever. Um, if you are going to write that yourself without any professional help, the only thing that I would say is just um, 
be professional about it, take it seriously, and just don't go on and on and on and on and on about it. Yeah. Um, if, if you're bitter that you feel like you got railroaded by the administration of your school, do not put that in there. You know, yeah. it needs to be like, I did this thing. I am very sorry for it. Here's what I learned. You know, not, you know, <laughs> just two sentences. Mm-hmm. And you've done the disclosure now and you're moving on. And it, people, the admissions folks are going to be used to seeing, you know, those all the time. Yeah. So if it's something crazy, um, you know, if you were convicted of, of a felony, that you, you're, you're going to probably need to have some help there. But if it's, if it's one of these little things that's no big deal, I don't think you want to say, don't editorialize though, right? I guess I'm, I'm sorry, I'm beating around the bush here. Um, don't say it's no big deal. Yeah. And don't even act like it's no big deal. Just, Just stick to the facts. Right, right? totally. Ad- admit it, you know, disclose it. Here's what happened. Here's the aftermath. I have had no incidents since 2000 or whatever you know and then that's mm-hmm. it yeah all right so um well i think that's it for today huh i think so um yeah thanks for uh listening thanks for writing in we've got the help at thinking uh, dot com email address ben and i are both available for private tutoring via skype or ben's in dc i'm in san francisco and la um we love hearing from you and i don't know yeah i think that's it anything else you want to add ben uh yeah we're on twitter now oh right i think we went from six followers to seven or eight whoa (laughs) what are we really at some people did start following us yeah um yeah thanks i don't know people use twitter i don't understand twitter but um, we would love to take your questions on Twitter. So um, what, are, what are we at? Thinking LSAT? We, yeah, thinking, at, at Thinking LSAT. Yep. So. Please tweet us and we will um, definitely respond. It'll be great. You'll be like the first person to ever tweet us. Yeah. <laughs>